Hey, turn with me once more to the book of Revelation. Our text for this morning uh, will be found in Revelation chapter 3. We're over halfway through uh, looking at each of the seven churches here in the book of Revelation. And this morning, we will be considering the church in the city of Sardis. City of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. Let's read our text together, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. The church described to us in these verses we just read was a church without a pulse. The main issue that plagued the Christians in Sardis is probably best described as spiritual complacency. By spiritual, I mean life in the spirit. You know, those things that pertain to the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us by God in Christ. And by complacency, I mean a false sense of contentment. A false sense of ease that led them to being lethargic and passive. If you were to put your finger and what was going on among the Christians in Sardis, this was it. Despite their reputation, they didn't have any sense of urgency. They lacked earnestness and zeal for the things of God. Spiritually speaking, they were complacent. And I wonder if today there are any of us who might describe ourselves this way. How would you describe your own Christian life? Would you diagnose yourself as spiritually complacent? I think it's important for us to ask that question. It's important that we consider this together because there are many possible reasons why we might revert to a pattern of spiritual complacency in the Christian life. One reason could be that we're distracted. 
we're distracted. You guys know this. We live in a highly distracted age where our attention is often so fragmented that it can be hard what to know. It can be hard to know what we're supposed to be focusing on. You've got a schedule to keep. You've got a to-do list that you don't want to fall behind on. You're constantly at every moment being bombarded by advertisements and news and entertainment. You log on to social media and you're being expected to care about like a thousand things within the span of a few minutes. You just keep scrolling and scrolling and everybody's asking you, care about this, care about that. Give your attention to this, give your attention to that. And all of that starts to add up after a little while, doesn't it? It adds up to the point where there's not much of your attention and your energy left for the things of God. This can also lead to another cause of spiritual complacency, which is apathy. We saw last week that what we worship, what we love, who we obey, these things are a matter of life and death. And yet sometimes, When we hear that, there is a real temptation to just sort of, you know, shrug our shoulders and move on to the next thing. No matter how long you've been following Jesus, it always seems like apathy is close at hand. Another reason we become spiritually complacent is presumption. We presume that God is pleased with the way that we're living because we do things like we go to church. We we give to good causes. We have a good family. We vote the right way. So we get to thinking, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Like if you look at my life, I'm doing all the right things. And all the while, as you're presuming upon those things, you're being lulled towards spiritual complacency, and it's hiding behind your presumption. Some of the most spiritually complacent people are people who look like they have it all together. It's because they've lost their sense of desperate need for the Lord, so they've grown half-hearted in seeking Him. They've grown half-hearted in living for Him. And then there's hardship. Sometimes things get really difficult in life. Tragedy strikes. Our hearts get broken. Our worst fears end up coming true. And we go numb. We slip into a coma of depression and despondency. And within us, that flame of passion that once burned brightly for the Lord, it has grown dim. The things of God that once brought you joy and peace and life, they no longer seem to do the trick. Instead, you find yourself in a dark, deep valley of spiritual inertia and complacency sets in. So whether whether we're talking about distraction or apathy, presumption or hardship, whatever the reason is, the word of Christ to the church in Sardis reminds us That spiritual complacency can be deadly. 
It can even infest an entire congregation. And so what I want us to realize today is that when we fall into spiritual complacency, there's only one thing that can carry us through. There's only one thing that can bring us back to a place of having zeal for the things of the Lord. And it's this. We must look to Jesus Christ in faith. That's really the big idea I want you to walk away with this morning. I want you to see that the church battles spiritual complacency by a living faith in Jesus. Some of us have been going through our days, our weeks, our months, maybe even our years, and we've been much like the church in Sardis where the things of God do not stir us to meaningful action. We've lost our urgency for the kingdom of God and we're no longer seeking it first. Instead, spiritually speaking, we are without a pulse. You might say that we come into this place today in need of a resurrection. And so with the eyes of faith, we need to be able to look to the one who can say to us, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. If we are ever going to be raised up from the slow death of spiritual complacency, it can only come from the one who can say those words and mean them. In fact, that's exactly what we're going to find in our text for today. These verses show us four realities. Four realities about Jesus. And these four realities will serve to strengthen our faith in the battle against spiritual complacency. So let's walk through each of these. The first reality about Jesus is his attentive care. His attentive care toward us, his people. There are times that we get lulled into complacency toward him, but he never becomes complacent toward us. No, his eye is always upon us. Just look at what he says in verse 1. He tells us that he has the seven Spirits of God and the seven stars. We've already talked about how the seven stars are the leaders, the pastors of these seven churches. We mentioned that in a sermon a few weeks ago. So what Jesus is doing here is he's assuring these pastors that they belong to him. Right, Even after everything that has gone wrong in their churches, Jesus has not left them. He has not forsaken them. No, he's saying, I've got you. I've got you, pastor. I'm holding you in the palm of my hand. Jesus also mentions the seven spirits, which refer to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Of course, let's not be confused about that. This is not to say that the Holy Spirit can be divided seven different ways. It is to say that the omniscient spirit of God is the only one who can bring life to each of these seven churches. And it is Jesus who pours out the Holy Spirit upon his people. It's what he does. That's why John the Baptist, when he was preparing the way for the Lord, he said, I can baptize you with water, but the one who's coming after me, the Messiah, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So whether we're talking about the church at Sardis, whether we're talking about the church here today, 
in this theater here in Kansas City, what God wants us to know is that he cares for us. Jesus is holding us in the palm of his hand. He has not left us. No, Emmaus, we are his treasured possession. We are purchased by his blood, and nothing can separate us from him. We also know that his care for us is entirely effective. We know this because he's given us his spirit. And this is important for us to remember today because it's through the spirit that Jesus gives us life. And that's exactly what spiritually complacent people need. We need life from Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans 8 where he reminds us that the mind set on the flesh is death. But when we set our minds upon the things of the spirit, we can have life and peace. Isn't that what you want today? Isn't that what you are searching for? If you have been going about your days in a state of spiritual complacency, do you not see that Jesus, by his spirit, is offering you the very thing that can make all the difference? You need life? Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus says, you need peace? You need peace in your life? He says, look to me and I will give you a peace which surpasses all understanding. So friends, let us receive the omniscient, effective care of Jesus for our souls today. He is not far off. No, he is here with us right now, freely offering us more of his spirit so that we might experience life and peace in ways that we can scarcely imagine. And yet, if we're anything at all like the church in Sardis, we just might be too complacent to recognize what Jesus is offering. Which is why we need to understand the second reality that Jesus reveals about himself in this text. It's the reality of his piercing assessment. His piercing assessment. Look at what else he says in verse 1 where he gets really to the heart of the issue. He says, I know your works. You have this reputation, this reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Those words just kind of land on the page with a thud. But that is the diagnosis of the great physician. He tells this church in Sardis, you show no signs of life. None whatsoever. Whatever their reputation was, Jesus knew the truth. Right? He knew the truth about the church in Sardis, that they were indeed a church without a pulse. On the outside, they looked like a major success. But in reality, they were failing at the very thing that mattered most. And so Jesus tells them in verse 2, wake up, strengthen what little life remains in you, because even that little sliver of life that's just barely hanging on, even that is about to die. And it's because I found your works to be incomplete in the sight of my God. As we have looked at what Jesus says to these churches, one thing I've noticed is that he's really focused on their works. He says this over and over. He says it to the church in Ephesus. He says it to the church in Thyatira. 
Now he's saying it to the church in Sardis. He says, I know your works. And that makes me wonder, why does Jesus keep saying that? Why does he keep going back to the works that these churches are doing? It's because our works as Christians, the things that we do, they reveal our true spiritual condition. So like Jesus says, if our works are incomplete in the sight of God, if our obedience is lacking, if we are shrugging off his commands, what does that tell us? It tells us that we are spiritually complacent. Now don't get me wrong, our works cannot justify us before God. We cannot earn his love we cannot earn his favor by doing the right things. So that's not what we're talking about here. What we are talking about is how our works can reveal and do reveal what we believe about Jesus. They reveal our love for him. They reveal our devotion to him. They reveal our fear of the Lord, which means that for us, good works are signs of life. They're signs of life. You see, each act of obedience is like a crest of a wave on an EKG monitor, right? You, you, if you've ever been in the hospital and if you've ever been hooked up to one of those things, you know how important it is that that line on that EKG monitor does not go flat. When Jesus looked at the church in Sardis, that's exactly what he saw. He saw a line that looked very flat and it's gotta make you wonder if Jesus is looking at our EKG monitor, our spiritual EKG monitor, what do you think he sees? How does that line look to him? Is it flat? Does it only curve up ever so slightly every once in a great while? Or does he see consistent waves? Does he see consistent signs of life? You can be sure that he is looking. You can be sure of that, that he's watching that monitor carefully. That's why he says to these churches, I know your works. That's exactly what he's saying to us today. When he sees our works, what do you think his assessment will be? Is he more likely to say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or could it be, friends, could it be that what he would say is whatever your reputation is, if you have a reputation for being alive, that's all well and good. But I really know what's happening. I see what's true. And what's true is that you are dead. If it's the latter, then we need to pay attention to what Jesus says next. The third reality that Jesus reveals about himself is the reality of his restorative commands. His restorative commands. Look back at verses 2 and 3 for just a moment. Notice how these verses... Uh, give five commands for the believers in Sardis. Jesus offers them five commands in these verses. He tells them, number one, to wake up. He tells them, number two, to strengthen what remains. He tells them, number three, to remember what they've heard, what they've received, what they've seen. He tells them, number four, to keep what they have received and what they've heard. And number five, he tells them to repent. Those are five commands from Jesus that if we will follow them by faith, they will help us 
in times of spiritual complacency. So look, let's look at each of these commandments very briefly. The first commandment, Jesus says, is to wake up. Be alert. Of all the commands in this passage, this one is most prominent. It's the one that's most emphasized. In the original language, it's the one that's, that's most emphatic. And this particular command would have been notable in Sardis, given the history of the city. If you look back at the history of Sardis, you'll find that the city had been conquered multiple times due to its lack of military readiness. Those appointed to defend the city of Sardis had been complacent. They did not remain alert to the dangers in their midst because they truly believed that Sardis could not be conquered. They presumed that they were invincible. They took such pride in their city. They thought they were so great that Sardis could not possibly fall. And yet at one point, the Persian Empire, under the rule of King Cyrus, descended upon the city of Sardis in the middle of the night, and the Persians conquered the city successfully. They did what was presumed to be impossible. And Jesus tells these Christians in Sardis, don't make that same mistake. Don't be fooled in the same way that your city was once fooled. No, stay alert. Be awake. Keep your eyes wide open. Beware of the dangers in your midst. In verse 3, Jesus tells them what will happen if they don't. He says, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I come against you. If the believers in Sardis did not stop sleepwalking through the Christian life, then they would be visited, not by King Cyrus, but by King Jesus. This was a warning that was meant to jolt them from their slumber. It would be like somebody coming into your bedroom in the middle of the night with a bullhorn and yelling, wake up, get out of bed. You are in danger. That's exactly what we need sometimes, isn't it? We drift into complacency. We start sleepwalking through the Christian life, and what we need is for the voice of Jesus Christ to come into our lives loud and clear and to tell us to wake up. Jesus also commands these Christians to strengthen what is left and is about to die. And then he adds, I've not found your works to be complete. These works of the believers in Sardis, they may have been enough to earn them a good reputation, but Jesus did not seem to think much of what he saw. Now, he judged their works to be woefully deficient. I just want you to listen for a moment to how one commentator describes the church in Sardis. He says, they had grown content with a mediocre, halfway, comfortable, and convenient Christianity. Their faith was not radical. It was almost invisible. The lost people among whom they lived and worked saw nothing different or unique about them. The culture did not oppose them. It simply ignored them. 
as of no real consequence or significance. They were so weak in their confession of Christ that they bothered no one. And I find it interesting that every other church that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation, for each one of them, he, he begins by commending something about them. And before he gets to any of the bad stuff, he says, I know your situation. I've been watching. I know that you're doing these things really well. You've been excelling at these things. And I'm pleased with that. These are things I want to commend. That's how Jesus starts each of these addresses. But he does not do that with the church in Sardis. Notice he doesn't begin that way with them. They're the one exception. And so you've got to think that there was so little to commend in this church that all that Jesus can say to them is strengthen what remains. Right? Strengthen your meager works because even those are barely hanging on by a thread. They're about to die. And then he commands them to remember what they have seen, heard, received. Remember, he says. I think this is so important because there is nothing that stimulates us to action more than taking time to remember what God has said and what God has done. When we take time to ponder the ways and the works and the words of the Lord, what we are doing is we are positioning ourselves for greater obedience. Friends, that's why we come to church. That's why we're here today. That's why we're gathered for worship instead of eating brunch and drinking mimosas. We've chosen to do this instead. We've chosen to come here and open the scriptures together. We've chosen to come here and sing God's praises with songs that remind us of who he is and what he's done. We've come here to confess our sins so that we can be assured of the many proofs of his steadfast love and mercy. We've come here into this place to listen to his word being proclaimed from this pulpit. We've come into this place to gather at his table so that we can feast on his body and his blood. Do you know why we do those things? Because we are a forgetful people. Throughout the week, we drift into complacency. We drift into inertia. And we need a standing weekly reminder where the mighty deeds of the Lord our God are held out before us so that we can remember who he is. He's not silent. He's not uninvolved. He's not distant and remote. No, he is our creator and our redeemer who has drawn near to be with us. To give us his word and his presence. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 77, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. He says, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Emmaus, let's pause here and remember what we've seen God do. Let's remember what we have heard him say. Because such remembrance is an essential weapon in the fight against spiritual complacency. But we not only need to remember these things, 
We also need to keep them. That's what the next command says that Jesus gives. We need to guard those things that we've seen and heard and received. We need to hold fast to them so that we might not lose them. The sad and quite frightening truth is that the gospel of God's grace and its implications for the church can be lost. They can be lost. One generation can take the gospel for granted, can presume upon the gospel, and then the next generation can end up forgetting the gospel entirely, forsaking it, abandoning it. This is why Paul tells Timothy more than once in the, the books of First and Second Timothy, he says, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Paul says this because as the church, we have been given a priceless treasure, friends, the very gospel of our God. And we must never let it slip through our fingers. We must never let it leave our grasp. Instead, we must be diligent to keep what we have received. Finally, Jesus tells the church in Sardis to repent. This should come as no surprise to us, given what we've heard Jesus say so far in the book of Revelation chapter 2. He says to the church in Pergamum, repent. He says to the church in Thyatira, repent. And now, among the lifeless ruins of the church in Sardis, he says the same thing. He proclaims the grace of repentance. Because frankly, among the believers in Sardis, Repentance had been neglected. And this is so telling, isn't it? Because one of the chief evidences of a church that is alive is repentance. Repentance is one of the ways that we know that we are remembering and guarding the gospel, which means that a church without repentance is a church without a pulse. It's a church that should expect a visit from Jesus. Jesus will come to an unrepentant church suddenly and without warning. That's what Jesus is talking about there in verse 3. He says he'll come like a thief. It's not referring to his second coming. Usually, like, when we, when we talk about Jesus, you know, coming like a thief in the middle of the night, we're referring to his return. But here in this passage, he's not talking about his judgment at the end of the age. He is talking about his judgment that will come swiftly upon his people in Sardis if they do not repent. It's like what 1 Peter chapter 4 says, that judgment must begin at the household of God. Yes, one day Jesus will return from heaven and he will righteously judge the living and the dead. But his judgment begins now with his people. Begins with us. When Jesus looks upon us to judge our works, when he sets his eyes upon us to evaluate how we have been living, what will he find? Will he find repentance? Or will he find spiritual complacency? Let us not be caught unawares. Let us do what we have heard Jesus say here. Let us wake up. 
Let us strengthen our good works. Let us remember what we have received and heard. Let us guard those things. And let us not neglect the grace of repentance. And yet, even though there was so little to commend about the church in Sardis, thankfully, there were some left in this congregation, a small minority, who were still keeping the commands of Christ. They had not defiled their garments. That's what it says in verse 4. Jesus says that those who have not defiled their garments will walk with him in white, for they are worthy. In verse 5, he says, to the one who conquers, they will be clothed thus in white garments, and Jesus will never blot out their names from the book of life. Jesus says to those who conquer, I will confess their names before my Father and before his angel. And this brings us to the final reality that we see about Jesus in this text. It's the reality of his affectionate pledge. His affectionate pledge. Because of this this pledge, whatever it costs us to be holy, whatever it costs us to be undefiled before the Lord, we know that it will be supremely worth it. In the age that is coming, when Christ returns for his bride, we will not be sorry that we swam against the godless culture that surrounds us. We will not regret that we went against the grain of worldliness. No, look at the promise that Jesus gives. Behold his pledge to those who conquer in his name. He says, I will clothe you in royal garments that do not fade in their glory and their purity. With this, Jesus is reminding us of who we are. We are his royal priesthood. You see... The garments that the priests wore in the temple in Jerusalem were spotlessly white. And in order to serve in the temple, in order to be fit for service in the temple, the priests had to keep them that way. The priests had to keep their garments from anything that was unclean. And Jesus is telling us that that's exactly what will happen for those who are in him. But we will not keep ourselves unclean. No, he is the one who will purify us. And because of that, nothing can make us unclean. We are clean. We are his royal priesthood. Cleansed from all defilement. If you were to flip over to Revelation chapter 5, you would, you would find these words where it says of Jesus that he was slain. And it says that By his blood, he ransomed a people for God, and he has made them, listen to this, he has made them a kingdom, and he has made them priests to our God. If you are in Christ, that's who you are. You are part of his royal priesthood, set apart from the world to make spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God in Christ. Jesus also gives us the pledge that he will make sure that your name is written in his book. Your name is written in heaven. And he says, I will lovingly and proudly confess to my father that I know you. We know that we're supposed to confess the name of Jesus, right? We know that. The Bible commands us to do that. But have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus is going to confess your name? He will breathe your name before the throne of God in heaven above. 
He will look to his father and he will say, this one is mine. This one belongs to me. I have purchased this person with my blood. I have made them righteous and I gladly acknowledge them as a precious, beloved child of God. So whatever is going on in your life today, whatever uncertainty that we may find ourselves in right now, I want you to be certain of this, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's no question about it. He will confess those before his Father He will confess those who endure with him to the end. That's his affectionate pledge. The question is whether we will receive that pledge by faith right here, right now. Maybe you're here today and you've been spiritually complacent. Maybe you would describe yourself that way this morning. And you're listening to what Jesus says in this text. And you're thinking, wow, this is the wake-up call I needed. I needed this reality check. Maybe you needed Jesus to tell you today to be alert for a change. But maybe, maybe along with this much-needed wake-up call, there is also a twinge of condemnation. Right? You feel the sting of guilt about your lack of desire for the things of God. You're pained by the thought that your good works have been incomplete. And the devil's even using that against you a little bit, right? He's whispering in your ear, ah, here's just another thing that you need to feel ashamed about. Here's just another way that you're not measuring up. He's throwing that in your face. If that's where you find yourself today, If that's what you're thinking right now, then before we conclude, I just want to remind you of two things. Let me give you two things to remember in the battle against spiritual complacency. First, I want to remind you that the greatest measure of your faithfulness is obedience, not the felt intensity of your desire. I do believe it is important for us to have our affection stirred by Christ. It is important that we experience desire for him. We even talked about that a few weeks back at the beginning of chapter 2 where we looked at how Christ tells the Ephesian church that, that, that they've lost their first love and they need to return to their first love. But here's also something that I want you to remember. Your desires, they will fluctuate. They will ebb and they will flow. There will be days when you wake up and your soul is absolutely on fire for God. You want to tell everybody you know about the faithfulness of Jesus. You want to sing his praises all the live long day. You want to get alone with him so that you can abide with him in prayer. You want to do all those things. And yet the very next day, the very next day, you wake up and all of that's totally gone. Your heart feels cold feels numb. And there are some times when there's a good explanation for that. But at other times, that's going to make zero sense. You won't be able to connect it to anything specific. You won't know why it's happened. You just will know that it has happened. And it makes zero sense. 
And so on those days where the felt intensity of your desire has waned to the point of being virtually undetectable, on those days, the most important choice you will make is to simply obey. Do the next obedient thing. Then do the next obedient thing after that. And just keep obeying Jesus by faith. Because we need to remember that not only do we walk by faith and not by sight, we also walk by faith and not by feelings. Your feelings are important. I'm not saying they're not. I'm not saying you should just stuff your feelings down. No, feelings should be acknowledged. Feelings should be acknowledged before God. We should acknowledge our feelings to ourselves. All that is true. But despite how you feel, you must always return to obedience. Whether the feelings are there or not, Christ will be there. He will be there as you keep walking obediently with him. Here's the second thing I want to mention. I want to remind you that the grace of God in Christ is more than enough. It's more than enough for you. It's more than enough for me. At various points, the truth is, our works will be incomplete. There will be things that we are called to do that are left undone. There will be things that we are called not to do that end up being done. And so if I could just leave you with one more thing this morning, it would be this. Let the grace of repentance be an ever-present reality in your life. Do not neglect this grace. Because the truth is, is that there is more grace for you in Christ than you will ever know. You will never exhaust it. Where our lack of obedience is abounding, his grace has no lack. It abounds all the more. Which doesn't mean that we get to abuse that grace or treat it cheaply, but it does mean that we can confidently receive that grace when we repent. So remember this, friend. Jesus is gracious towards spiritually complacent people who turn to him. He is gracious. He loves us so much that he has shown up here today to warn us about the deadliness of complacency. And he will give us more than enough grace to respond to him in faith as we continue to follow him. So let's do that together. Let's continue to follow him. And let's respond to him now. Would you lift your hearts to God in prayer with me? Sovereign Lord, awaken us today. Lead us back to life in you. Where we've been spiritually complacent, God, give us your grace to invigorate us. Give us your grace so that we may exercise a living faith. Where we have felt no desire for you, Lord, would you strengthen us to take the next step of obedience, whatever it is. We know that the greatest reward of all will be to hear you confess our names before your Father. And so everything we do today, everything we say, everything we think and feel, let it all be in light of that day. 
where we know we're going to hear our names leave your lips in heaven. We ask all these things for your glory. Amen. Church, in just a moment, we're going to do what we do every